You know, that feeling of having something right on the tip of your tongue and you just can't remember what it is. You can't remember that person's name or that particular word that you're trying to say. If you've struggled with remembering today's guest is one you're going to love. And the book that she wrote is a must read. It's called Remember the science of memory and the art of forgetting. And one of the things that I love about this book is that it really dives into how our memories are impacted by emotion, by sleep, by stress, by context. And one of the things that we talk about during the interview is being able to really differentiate the remembering how to remember better, how to not worry about what we are forgetting. In other words, how much forgetting is normal or what kind of forgetting is normal and what kind of forgetting we should worry about or look into more. What kind of forgetting is possibly showing a developing of Alzheimer's, right? And I feel like, especially for those of us that have Alzheimer's in the family, immediately when you forget any little thing, you're like, oh my gosh, do I need to worry about this? And our guest today tells us when we should look into our forgetting and when the forgetting is completely normal. And it turns out our brains are not meant to remember the things that we try to remember sometimes. So we're going to understand our brains a whole lot better after this episode of Chats with Gigi and after this interview with Lisa Genova. She graduated valedictorian from Bates College with a degree in biopsychology, and she has a PhD in neuroscience from Harvard University. She is acclaimed as the Oliver Sacks of fiction and the Michael Crichton of brain science. She is a New York Times bestselling author of novels Still Alice, Left Neglected, Love Anthony, Inside the O'Briens, and Every Note Played. Julianne Moore won the best actress Oscar for her role in the film adaptation of Still Alice. And film adaptations for Every Note Played, Inside the O'Briens, and Left Neglected are already in production. Lisa's first work of nonfiction, Remember, The Science of Memory and the Art of Forgetting, was an instant New York Times bestseller. And her TED Talks on Alzheimer's and memory have over 10 million views. And we are lucky to have her today on the Chats with Gigi podcast. So before we get started with this interview, I want to remind you that every single author that we have on the show is a book that we get to read together inside the Seizing Happy community. And you get to submit questions for the author as we read the book together. So essentially, you get to interview the authors with me. If you want to become part of our Seizing Happy community, not just for how excited it is to get to read these amazing books together and then to have you help me interview the authors, but for the workshops that we host on there, for the networking opportunities, both online and in person, which we're hosting mostly in South Florida right now, but we will be expanding um, to other cities. More to come on that at a later time, but very excited about this. Um, but yeah, if you want to become a part of the Seizing Happy community, make sure that you check out the show notes and get more info on that. I can't wait to see you in there. There's a lot of one-on-one, -on -one, a lot of me um, in there that we get to chat and hang out. And of course, our book club where we uh, choose these incredible books. I bring the authors on the show and you get to ask your questions too. So if that sounds fun, check out the show notes. But for now, let's get started with today's interview. 
This is Chats with Gigi, a podcast for women who are ready to step into their power, get unstuck, and create more freedom in all areas of life. I'm your host, Gigi Diaz, certified life and business coach, media personality, and multi-passionate entrepreneur. I've helped hundreds of women find the necessary clarity, confidence, and courage to build their dream life and achieve success with less stress. If you're seeking weekly motivation, practical and spiritual advice, and tangible resources to scale in life and in business, then you're in the right place. Are you ready? Here we go. Before I start this episode, I need you to do something for me. Mark your calendar for March 30th, 2023. This will be our greatest seizing happy in-person event to date. Move, breathe, grow. A half-day experience helping purpose-driven women just like you to tap into their feminine power through movement, connect with your intuition through breathwork, and discover new tools for business and personal growth. We're going to have hors d'oeuvres, lunch, intentional networking, and connection with other womenpreneurs and community leaders. And of course, we're going to have a whole lot of fun. Tickets for Move, Breathe, Grow are already on sale at SeizingHappy.com. Click on Events and select Move, Breathe, Grow. This will be our last in-person event until further notice. So I really hope to see you there and give you a big old hug. Head on over to SeizingHappy.com, click Events and select Move, Breathe, Grow. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Chats with Gigi podcast. I'm so excited to have you here um, because your book is awesome. I love this topic because I feel like it's something that we all struggle with. And it's that, you know, that, that feeling almost of I've lost control of what's going on in this thing. (laughs) I don't know what's happening in here, right? Like, why can't I remember things that matter to me? Why can't I remember the things that I think are important? Is it really important if I can't remember it? So this is such a great topic. What made you want to write this book? Remember? Thank you so much. It's fun to be here with you. Um, I, wanted to write this book because so my first novel is a book called Still Alice and it's a book about a woman who gets young onset Alzheimer's it was made into a movie with Julianne Moore and I have been using that book as a vehicle for conversation to talk about this really scary upsetting hard topic that is Alzheimer's for over a decade and you know wanting to talk to people about you know what is dementia? How do you recognize it? How do we live so that we can reduce our risk of developing Alzheimer's? How do we be with someone with Alzheimer's? And I found that in those talks that I would give all over the world for the past 10 years, without fail, after the talk, either in the book signing line or in the ladies room or on my way out, someone would corner me. Often many people would corner me and ask me, all kinds of questions about their memory. So these are typically people who have a loved one with who had or has dementia, who has had or has Alzheimer's. But these are people who are say in their 50s and 60s, maybe even in their 40s, who will come up to me and say, okay, so I regularly walk into a room and don't know why I'm in there. Or if I don't write down everything I need to do later on a list, I will forget to do it. 
or my friend will recommend a TV series on Netflix and I'm so excited to watch. And then by the end of the very same day, I sit down to watch it and I can't remember the name of the, of the TV series. Like, so these people come up to me really panicked and afraid and like carrying lots of anxiety and shame about their memory, thinking that they're about to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And without fail, I could tell people that based on what they were bringing to me, that they were just experiencing what it's like to own a human brain and that these kinds of forgetting are normal. And, and so what I realized was, you know, people, I mean, life is so stressful today, right? And chronic stress is not good for us, you know, in lots of ways, including for your memory. Um, and so if I could take the stress from people, if I could remove this from people's plates, like, can we understand how memory works and maybe have a better relationship with it so that when we experience these moments of like, oh my God, where did I put my phone? We can at least know that like, this isn't a sign of memory impairment or impending Alzheimer's and we can relax and maybe know how to find the phone that went missing or know how to prevent the phone from going missing in the first place, but just to recognize that our brains are not designed to remember everything and that's okay. I love that. And I think you touched on something that I find to be super curious. And that is let's understand the way that our brain works better. Yeah. And I feel like we have this magical thing inside our head, right? Called our brain. And we use it all the time, consciously and subconsciously. We have no idea what's going on in there. We don't understand exactly how it works. And it's our most powerful tool. And you're not the first person that I hear talk about, like, we need to understand our brain better. Where do you think? Um, or rather, why do you think that there has been a disconnection with the curiosity, not in doctors, but in people about how to make, how to figure this thing out? Yeah, it's this strange thing I've come across. And I mean, I write, so all of my books, the, the stories, the, the novels um, that I write are all about people living with neurological diseases, disorders, mental illness, anything from the neck up. And it's, <laughs> it's because there's this special sort of taboo um, there's this sense that you have no agency over anything that goes on in your brain. Like people are pretty comfortable with the idea that you have some influence over your heart health or your lady parts, um, or your skin, like where the sunscreen, like we feel like there are things that we can do to assist the functioning and protect the health of all the other parts of our body. But people tend not to think that they can do anything about the, the health and functioning of, of their brain. Um, and so this it's, it's, I don't know, it's cultural. It's just where we are in a moment in time. It is the least understood of all of our organs for sure. It's the most complex for sure. Um, with the exception of maybe the microbiome, that's sort of a newer realm, but between those two, we've got just about as many cells and connections. And it's, it's, um, it's just kind of like the wild west. We haven't really discovered much of it yet. Yeah. And I find that to be fascinating because I also think it's the most powerful organ that we have when it comes to the human experience, right? Like, of course, our heart and the lungs and all that stuff. But like when it comes to all the stuff that we focus on, right, we focus on success, on being good parents, on being entrepreneurs, on writing our first or next book, on all these things. And so much of it has to do with with the brain, right? Like, how are you thinking about these things? Is your brain helping you, right? Like, where, where is, where is that, um, that space where we need to do, or what do you think is that space where we need to be in, to be able to create a better relationship with understanding our brain? Right. I, I love what you just said. And you hit on it. Like the heart is a pump, the kidneys, a filter, but the brain, this is where you think and remember, this is how you do anything. This is how you 
you know, walk, talk, ride a bike, drive your car, play piano. This is your mood. This is your personality. I mean, it is in charge of so much. Um, and so you're right. It's uh, for living a life that is fulfilling and happy and, and feels rewarding and good. It's, it helps to have an understanding as to how your brain can either assist you or get in the way. Um, because there are ways that the brain isn't designed to do all the things we ask it to do. And it is, you know, a lot of those sort of automatic running thoughts that might be negative for a lot of us um, can get in the way of, of what, what we do. We, we remember what we pay attention to. And this isn't just where you put your phone, your keys, your glasses, and your car. This is also your outlook. So if you pay attention to you know what you're what's what you're grateful for what's amazing today um if you pay attention to what's magical and what's awe-inspiring that's what you will remember and your life's narrative will be a story of beauty and goodness if you pay attention to all that's lacking and all that's negative and horrible um those are the memories you'll retain as well so there are ways in which understanding how our brain works can help us lead happier lives I love that you said that because I feel like sometimes, um, I've heard this saying before, like where your focus goes, your energy flows. Right. And that sounds super woo woo. Right. And I'm like all hippie out here and it's like, yeah, focus on the good things, but it's scientifically proven as you just explained right now that you will remember what you pay attention to. And so we can use our tool, our, our brain as a tool to facilitate a happier life, to focus on, um, to bring more attention to what is good. And that in turn, I would guess is something that's going to boost our mood. It's going to help with our, our overall wellness, right? And our overall joy and appreciation for life, right? Absolutely. So yes, the very first necessary ingredient for creating a memory that's gonna last longer than this present moment is attention. It isn't woo-woo, it's a neurological input. And so yes, what you bring your attention to, what you focus on becomes the reality that you can remember later. And so how do we focus on that? How do we improve our attention? Because I, for one, have, sometimes I struggle where it's like, okay, I'm going to focus on this. I'm going to do this. And five minutes into this, I'm over there doing that. <laughs> like, <laughs> how do we, and yeah. it's my intention to do this, right? But my brain's like, I don't really think so. And of course the brain sometimes is the boss. So how do I become the boss again? Yeah, you're sort of describing the human condition these days, I think, because <laughs> I think in part our cell phones are such distraction devices, right? They're attention thieves. Um, it's so seductive to answer that text to, oh, you know, there's alerts that happen all day long. It's, it's reminding you of what you need to do later, which is great if you've got stuff in your calendar, but it's also pulling you into respond and react. Um, and so that pulls you away from whatever it was that you were thinking of doing in the moment. Um, interestingly, caffeine helps us improve our attention. Mm. Um, and by way of improving our attention, it can help you with your memory. Um, that said, you don't want to consume caffeine too late in the day because it has a long half-life. And so if you have a latte at seven o'clock at night, you're still going to have caffeine buzzing around through your brain and body at midnight, possibly keeping you from falling asleep. And we need sleep. We need good quality and quantity of sleep um, for us to remember what happened today and to have a good memory for what's going to happen tomorrow. 
I love that. So you've mentioned two elements already, and that is attention for better memory and sleep for better memory. What are the other ingredients that we need to improve our ability to remember? Okay. So in a nutshell, our brains are really pretty good at remembering what's meaningful, emotional, surprising, or new, and what we repeat in practice. They forget what isn't. So if you think about your day-to-day life, most of your day-to-day life is spent doing routine, inconsequential, kind of predictable things, right? So every day you probably get up and shower, brush your teeth, drink coffee or have breakfast. Maybe you commute to work, you answer emails, you text the same group of people. Uh, Maybe you pick your kids up from school and you drive that same route every day, have dinner, spend too much time on social media, watch a little TV and go to bed day after day after day after day. And this is not so meaningful, emotional, surprising or new. So we forget it. If you, if I asked you, what did you have for lunch last Monday? Tell me everyone. Yeah. Tell me everyone you texted and everyone who texted you two days ago. I mean, this is only two days ago. So we don't remember. And we ever ever driving your car on a familiar route, you suddenly have no memory of the trip so far. It's because it's same old, same old. Um, Our brains don't keep that. So if you want to remember more of what's happening in your life, you need to get out of your routine. If that's important to you. Again, like how much is it important? It's not that important for us to remember the details of every morning cup of coffee. Like that's okay. But the things that we do want to keep, right? So I do want to remember to pick up the dry cleaning and call the, uh, make a dentist appointment for my son, or I want to remember where I put my keys. Um, There are ways, again, a lot of those have to do with attention, writing things that we need to do later down because our brains are not good at remembering what we want to do later. That future to-do list is not, our brains don't know how to do that. Like neurologically, we're not set up for that. So people think, oh my God, I have to remember it. And it's like, no, you actually should write that down. Um, But yeah, meaningful, emotional, surprising, and new. And again, what those things have in common is you pay attention to them, right? If you say something really emotional or something really emotional happens, and this is why we collectively have what, what's called flashbulb memories. They're not photographic, but we tend to remember a lot about things that are shocking, emotional, have a lot of significance to us. If it's, you know, 9-11 or the space shuttle Challenger blowing up or someone in the family died or someone in the family had great, great news, she got engaged. Ah, and everybody remembers, right? So it's it's meaningful, emotional, surprising and new and what we repeat in practice. So the first time you go to hit a golf ball or learn to play for a lease on the piano, it's, you know, every single step is like disconnected and clunky and you're just, you're not getting it. It's hard, but you do it again and again and again. And that repetition, that practice allows you to form what's called the muscle memory, which doesn't live in your muscles. Actually, it's the choreography that's memorized in your brain and you learn to do it. So what's meaningful, emotional, surprising, new, and what we practice. I love that. Now, what would you say for those people that are still concerned about what forgetting is normal and what forgetting is not normal? How do we know the difference where we won't freak out if we forget, you know, consistently forget little things? Yeah. So a few examples that will help. So like, okay, so let's say you go to the mall and you park in a parking garage and you, you skip off into the mall to go shop for an hour. And then you come out and you think, oh my God, I can't find my car. Did I park on level three or four? I don't, I can't remember where I parked. 
99% of the time I'm betting you didn't pay attention to where you parked in the first place, right? You were no, thinking no. of other things. You were on the phone You were, and you zipped off and you didn't actually take a moment to get your bearings and see the cues, the context around your car, like, oh, I'm in level 4B and that's near, you know, this yellow pole, whatever's there. Um, if you have something like Alzheimer's, it would be, say, again, same scenario, you go to the mall, either you drive yourself because it's still early enough in the disease, or maybe someone drove you. Go to the mall for an hour, you come out. It's not really that you're wondering whether you parked on level three or level four. The, the forgetting looks more like, I can't remember how I got here. Or you could be standing in front of your car and not recognize that it's yours because you can't remember what your car looks like. Mm. the distinction is really clear it's um people are always forgetting words right oh my god i'm always forgetting words that must be a sign of alzheimer's and truth is that is a sign of alzheimer's when you have trouble retrieving words but with alzheimer's it's it's more frequently common nouns so words like phone computer pen paper uh car those go missing and it's it's happening dozens of times a day so if you know someone with alzheimer's it really does feel like a frustrating game of charades all day mm -hmm. long for the rest of us and for 25 year olds who this happens to many times a week but they don't sweat it because they're 25 and, and immoral <laughs> still um this tip of the tongue oh what's his name oh my gosh it tends to be more often proper nouns than common nouns. So these are people's names, movie titles, book titles, cities. And the reason for that is how our brains are organized. You can imagine proper nouns living in neurological cul-de-sacs. There's ultimately only one road that's going to lead into that address you're looking for. As opposed to a common noun where you can imagine living on Main Street with hundreds of roads that will get you there. Um, so th these proper nouns, because they're so tricky to reach, they often get stuck on the tip of our tongues. It's totally normal. And it does not weaken your memory whatsoever for you to Google it. So mm -hmm. people think that they, I have to come up with it on my own or I'm going to worsen my memory. I'm going to make it weaker. And that's just a myth. That's not true. It's totally okay to Google it. You can then get your, give your brain a break because what it's doing is it's searching the wrong neighborhood. When you can't come up with the name, you've probably come up with something similar or has the same first letter. You're somewhere else. And so your brain's working really hard, but it's in the wrong neural neighborhood. Like you're over here and you need, need to be over here. So if you can just look it up and be done with it, your brain's not doing anything useful in that state. So look mm -hmm. it up. And now you've got the words you're looking for, and you can now give your brain a chance to work on and do other things much better for you. Yeah. And so something you were talking about was improving our brain's ability to do these things. How do we do that? How do we strengthen that muscle? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of this has to do with the physiology of memory. And so this has to do with some things that don't sound particularly sexy, but they work. So I mentioned sleep already. I know that sleep is a tough thing for a lot of people, um, but scientifically there's really solid evidence that we humans need seven to nine hours of sleep a night to function optimally. Your immune system, your cardiovascular system, we fight off cancer while we sleep and we optimize our brain while we sleep. With respect to memory, there's three things that go on. <clears throat> Excuse me. The first is, so all of the, the sights, the sounds, the tastes, the smells, the feelings, the information, the language of what we paid attention to. <clears throat> Excuse me, let me just get more. 
<clears throat> so everything that we paid attention to and, and wanted to learn that was meaningful, emotional, surprising, and new to us while we were awake. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry. So everything that we paid attention to while we were awake gets linked into a lasting memory, a long-term memory while we sleep. And it happens during very particular stages of sleep. And so if you don't get a full night's sleep, your brain might not have had enough time to do its job. And so you'll wake up the next day with those memories not fully formed or maybe not even some of them formed at all. Um, the other thing is getting a good night's sleep. We all know this, you wake up the next day and you feel alert and able to pay attention. But if you have a crappy night's sleep, you wake up, oh, I'm dragging myself around. I can't pay attention to what you're saying. And so if I can't pay attention, I'm not gonna be able to make good memories today because that's the first necessary ingredient. The last thing with respect to memory that sleep does for us is that it helps reduce our chance of getting Alzheimer's. So while we're asleep, the sewage and sanitation department comes out, the, the janitors, they're called glial cells. They get busy clearing away all the metabolic debris that accumulated in our brains while we were in the business of being awake. And one of the things that critically clears away is a protein called amyloid beta. Now, if amyloid beta is not cleared away and it is allowed to pile up and it takes like you know, 15 to 20 years of the piling up. So this does not happen overnight. We don't need to panic every time we get a bad night's sleep. But over time, if it accumulates enough, it will trigger the onset of Alzheimer's. Hmm. So we every night is an opportunity to get a good night's sleep, which is good for your memory, right? So it's not like the sleep you haven't had in your life so far as water under the bridge, it's already happened. Here we are. So what can we do tonight? And so um, there's a lot of stuff on sleep out there that folks can Google, but it's, you want the room temperature to be 68 or less, right? You don't want to drink caffeine too close to bedtime, get off the screens, like, you know, hopefully an hour or so before bedtime. Again, that bright light on your phone is like a giant sun and it's confusing your pineal gland into thinking that it's daytime and it's like, stay awake. And so you want the drowsiness transmitters, the drowsiness neuromodulators to have a chance to like do their job. And the phone is confusing your brain. Um, so there are things that we could, alcohol is going to be tough if you're drinking um, in the evenings. And I know this is, you know, part of life, but recognize that it's going to disrupt sleep. It's going to disrupt REM sleep, and it's going to maybe wake you up in the night to have to go pee. Um, so just if you're having trouble Find maybe one thing that you can do to try and help and see if you can improve your night's sleep. Um, what else? Exercise is huge. Um, so just getting up and moving. We know that um, people who exercise have a 50 to 60% reduced risk of Alzheimer's. That's and huge. It's huge. If I had told you there was a pill that did that, everyone would go buy it. Yeah. Um, and about 30 minutes a day, four to five times a week, a brisk walk. Uh, like you're in a hurry is, is minimally what would work. And that's not that much. And if you want to really supercharge this, go walk with a friend because being socially active is really good for our brains. Those conversations have never happened before. So your brain, if you're paying attention, is really busy learning new things. So you're in conversation with a friend, you're socially um, uh, active, you're not isolated. Being socially isolated is really stressful as we've all experienced in the pandemic um, is one of the biggest psychological stressors we can experience and being chronically stressed is not good for us. So walking with a friend and walk somewhere new that you've never walked before. And now you've got a three for one um, that's really good for your brain and your memory. Um, diet's huge. So Mediterranean and mind diet. So 
eating the rainbow, the colorful fruits and vegetables, the greens, the olive oil, the nuts, the beans, the fatty fishes. Um, doesn't have to be 100% folks. So people might hear this and be like, oh, I can never do all that. I like donuts and bacon. <laughs> I'm out. But, but it's what could you introduce today that would support your brain health, right? So it doesn't have to be 100% folks, but like, can you eat, you know, you know, a handful of blueberries on your cereal? Um, can you, instead of snacking on potato chips, can you, I, today I just cut up a nectarine like in a really hard, crunchy nectarine and that satisfied that, that urge to crunch on something. So what can you do to fuel your body? That's going to help your, your memory today and reduce your risk of Alzheimer's in the future. Um, getting a handle on chronic stress. Chronic stress is really bad for all of your organ systems, including your brain and memory. You're not going to be able to optimize your memory if you're swimming in a pool of adrenaline and cortisol. <laughs> and it's not meant to, we're not meant to swim in those pools. It's supposed to be a quick on, quick off thing. Like something urgent happens. There's a crisis, there's a threat. Whoosh, we're supposed to, heart rate goes up, breathing. Like you fight or flight, fight or flee, right? You react. But then it's all supposed to calm right down. Like you either died or you survived. And if you survive, it's all supposed to calm down. With chronic stress, the the shutoff valve essentially breaks and you're just in a constant state of fight or flight, even when the threat is not there. Mm. And the thoughts in our head can be like predators, right? There's no lion chasing me in my living room, but I'm ruminating or thinking or worrying. And oh my God, I'm, I'm, I got the stress response going. Um, if you're under chronic stress, you'll have a smaller hippocampus. The hippocampus is the part of your brain that is necessary for forming new long-term memories. Oh, wow. Yeah, terrifying. But the good news is that we have something called neurogenesis in your hippocampus, which means we can birth new neurons there. And that will happen when we can reduce our reactivity to chronic stress. So I'm not saying that the stress is going to go away, right? You're, you know, there's all kinds of things out there, but can we get a handle on our breathing? Can we do things like yoga and meditation and mindfulness? Um, and so in the face of everything that feels threatening out there, can we keep our system relaxed and calm? And then you're, it will restore your hippocampus and your ability to remember. You, people probably feel, felt pretty foggy during the pandemic um, mentally, right? It's like, oh, I can't remember anything anymore. Like what's happened to my brain? What's happened to my memory? One is you were chronically stressed and we don't make new memories well when we're chronically stressed and we don't retrieve them well when we're chronically stressed. The other is that the menu of experiences went from going to parties and theater and, and hikes and vacations to the size of your house with the same people. And so we weren't experiencing things that were new, right? Mm -hmm. Surprising, uh, like maybe emotional or meaningful. Every day was same old, same old. Tuesday was Saturday. And so we don't remember a lot from that period of time because it was, you know, you know, understanding that some people, you know, had experienced a lot of tragedy and, and loss during those years. But for those of us who were trapped at home where we were essentially trapped at home, um, your memory suffered for sure. Yeah, absolutely. But it's reversible. Like when we're out in the world now and I, like a memory will be like, oh, thank you. Now I have some things to grab onto. Yeah. And we can make those small changes and see big impact. I love to hear that. I got to ask you, you're a neuroscientist. You're obviously very knowledgeable about all of the brain stuff, right? Why do you choose to write fiction? It's a very good question. Um, <laughs> it's because, um, well, it started with my Nana. 
My grandmother had Alzheimer's. And as the neuroscientist in my family, I read everything I could read about Alzheimer's. And this was back, my grandmother had this in the late 90s. <clears throat> and um, everything I read was useful. It was really helpful. I read about you know the science of Alzheimer's, the current understanding. I read the clinical management. I read caregivers point of view. So the 36 hour day, which was super helpful. But everything was written by the point of view of an outsider, right? Mm -hmm. So clinicians, scientists, caregivers, social workers, and it lacked the perspective of the person with it. And I realized that with my grandmother, I was in my, I was 28 when she was diagnosed, um, that I had a lot of sympathy for her. I felt so bad for her. And she had, had nine children all beautiful family, like so many grandchildren. I'm one of the younger ones, like just this wonderful life that she became systematically disconnected from. She didn't know who we were. She didn't know who she was. She didn't, she lost connection to all of that history, that life she built. <clears throat> and so I felt so bad for her and so bad for us. I loved her and I was losing her, but that's sympathy. And I didn't know how to stay connected to her in that state. What I needed was empathy. I needed to know how to feel with her, right? So mm -hmm. like Brene Brown says, sympathy is feeling for someone and disconnects you. It, it creates emotional distance. There's you over there and you're different from me. And here's me over here, safe from you. And empathy collapses that distance. It's I'm feeling with you. I can imagine and feel what it's like to be you. And it would allow me to sit there and be with my grandmother when she's like, I don't know who you are, or I'm waiting for my mother. She's going to be here any minute. And her mother had died 30 years ago. So I didn't know how to do that then. But I had this lovely little aha, which was, well, fiction is a place where you can walk in someone else's shoes. Fiction gives you a chance to experience empathy for someone whose life is much different than yours. And so I thought, well, someday I'll write a novel about a woman with Alzheimer's and tell it from her perspective. And lots of things happened that, that unexpected things happened that, that allowed that to happen before I was retired. I imagined it would be a hobby, but I did this. Um, I started writing Still Alice when I was um, almost 34. I'm 51 now. Um, and that book was the beginning of it all. It really was this magical I mean, it wasn't at first. No one wanted the book at first. I had to self-publish it and sell it out of the trunk of my car for almost a year. But eventually it was published by Simon Schuster. It went on to be a movie. And it is. it became this way of allowing people to step into a topic that's really scary. It gave them permission and language and familiarity to understand what it might feel like to have Alzheimer's. Like, what does that look like and feel like and sound like, right? Like, so it gave me permission to write more stories so that I really recognize the power in, in writing story to help people develop empathy. Um, so that's what I went on to do. And I have done it for, I've done it with, with topics, um, stories about people with ALS, Huntington's disease, traumatic brain injury, autism. And now I'm writing about a woman with bipolar disorder. Before we continue with this episode of the Chats with Gigi podcast, let's talk about something really important. You can upgrade your car, your cell phone, even your home to a better or to a newer model, but you can't do the same with your body, right? <laughs> you're stuck in the body you got until you're not in it anymore. 
This is why what you put in your body is so important. And this is where Island Sips Juice and Salads comes in. They're a delicious raw and vegan food restaurant located in Lauderhill, Florida, with the mission of jumpstarting your health transformation journey. It's not about dieting, okay? It's not about extreme, unsustainable shifts to your lifestyle. No, no, no. It's about incorporating better quality foods each day, natural ingredients, juices, and delicious snacks that are going to keep you nourished and energized to show up in your life as the healthiest, strongest version of you. If you're ready to start taking care of your body the way that it deserves to be taken care of, head on over to islandsips.com. That's such a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I got to ask you, you know, now switching things up a little bit to that entrepreneurial brain of brain part of me, you said in the beginning, nobody wanted your book. This is your first book. You said you had to self-publish and literally sell it out of your trunk for like the first year. Mm -hmm. How do you feel in that moment? And how do you overcome those moments where after spending and giving so much to your book, I mean, I would imagine it feels like I failed. Nobody wanted to publish my book. You know, how do you, what was that moment like for you? And how did you overcome it and say, well, fuck it. I'm going to publish it myself. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I love that. You know, what's weird. And I don't, I don't take credit for this. It just, it's just kind of my nature for some reason. It was, I sent out a hundred query letters and I heard back pretty much from all of them right away saying, dear author, no, thank you form letter, but they hadn't read the manuscript. So that was disappointing, but not really discouraging. I did hear back from three agents who wanted to read the manuscript. Um, two of them said, you know, I think the, the fiction market, it's just too hard for this kind of a story. Like it's just, it's Alzheimer's is too heavy, too depressing. Like it's not going to be enough of an audience. And the last one said, why are you writing fiction? You have a PhD in neuroscience. You should be writing nonfiction. (laughs) Same thing you just asked. So I was really left at that point with the, that choice and that, like, what do I make it mean? Right. Okay. Nobody wants this. Am I, did I fail? Um, And the, I didn't hold it that way. I, I remember thinking like, huh, I thought this was the path to publication. There must be another path. Um, and I recognized that, that the choice was, well, now I could either stick it in a drawer and just say, well, I did it um, and go back to doing what I was trained and educated to do. Um, and then I also I also had that like, well, you know, am I like one of those contestants on American Idol that they show at the beginning of the season who audition and think they can sing, like genuinely think they can sing, but they're tone deaf. I'm like, well, maybe my book's just terrible and I don't know it. Um, but I asked enough of, of my, my friends and family who would have not bullshitted me. They would have told me if it was terrible, like, don't waste any more time on this, Lisa, go back to what you're good at. Um, so it was 2007 and it was the beginning days of self-publishing. So it still carried a lot of stigma, which I get like, cause anybody could publish anything. Um, but I figured, well, I'm going to give it a shot and I'm going to give myself one year. And if it doesn't go from the trunk of my car to big publishing house in a year, I gotta, I gotta feed the kids. Like I've got to, you know, put this in a drawer and go back to doing what, what I know how to do. But I'm so, I mean, obviously so glad that I gave myself that space to, to see if I could launch it. 
I just figured there was a, there was some other way. It wasn't like, oh, I failed. It's over. It was like, oh, let me see if there's another way. I love that. And I think that if we gave ourselves, yeah, if we gave ourselves that opportunity more often, I feel like we would achieve more of our dreams, right? Rather than just saying, well, this one way that I wanted to do this didn't quite work for me. So I guess I failed. It's more like, what's the other option? Yeah. Are there other ways? Can I be creative about this and not take it as a, oh, I suck. Oh, it's terrible. Um, And yeah, it's like, I think about that. Like, imagine if I had just said, oh, well, never mind, stuck it in a drawer. I mean, yeah, I love my life. I love what I get to do. It, it carries so much intention and purpose. It's so rewarding. It's fun. It's super flexible. So I have kids that I can be available to in the afternoons and you know drive them to whatever they need to go to. And um, I get to travel the world and speak to people. I get to make movies. Um, we've got three other movies, adaption, ad- film adaptions of my books in development. Um, so like, hopefully those will all come together. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, you get to make a difference and, and help people understand these like really, you know, our brains again, so complicated. Right. And when they go wrong, when they break, it's, um, it can be devastating for families. And on top of that, there's the devastation of being excluded from belonging, right? Mm -hmm. So it's hard enough to have something go wrong with your brain. But then if society says, we don't want to look at you, we don't know what's going on with you. And that makes us uncomfortable. And the quickest way for me to relieve this discomfort is to just not look at you. And Mm -hmm. so now I've just turned my back on millions of people um, and they have to feel alienated and isolated and, and lonely and and loneliness is so painful. Um, So, so I, you know, I love what I get to do. I get to help with some of that. That's fantastic. And we're so glad that you do it. And I'm so excited that I had an opportunity to, uh, to read this book. And I'm also excited that you're coming to Miami soon, right? For the Miami book fair. Tell me more about that. I can't wait to see you there. Oh my gosh. Thanks. Yes. I'm coming in November. I'll be there over the weekend of the 19th. I'm actually not sure when when I'm speaking. (laughs) Um, I think it's the Saturday of that weekend. And I'm super excited. I live on Cape Cod in Massachusetts and it will definitely be cold and dark here by then. So coming to Miami is always fun that time of year. And the Miami book fair is a blast. I've done it before. Yeah. Miami's hot all year long. So there's a, every time I hear people are like, I'm coming to Miami for winter. I'm like, what is winter? (laughs) What is winter? Somebody give me winter. All right. Thank you so, so much for being um, on the show today, Lisa. Your book is amazing. I'm excited that I got to speak with you about it. And I'm looking forward to your next uh, book. You said it's about a woman who has bipolar disorder. Is that right? Yes. Can you give, can you give me any more of that? Are we going to have you back on the show once that one comes out though? Yeah, let's do that. So um, I'm at about 75 pages. So I'm still still in the writing process, but it's about um, a 29-year-old stand-up comedian um, with bipolar disorder. So in addition to all the research I did on bipolar, talking to psychiatrists and psychologists and people who have it and their families, I had to learn a lot about comedy. Yeah. So I interviewed Amy Schumer and Maria Bamford, a lot of other comedians and um, taking some stand-up comedy writing classes, which has been a blast. So yeah. How fun is that? So much fun. Does the book come to you all at once or do you get the idea, start the book, and then you see where it goes from there? Yeah, I get the idea, do tons of research, get more ideas that come out of listening 
and doing that research and all of the reading as well. Um, and then it's like, yeah, you don't know what you don't know. And so as I write, I discover more and it, it I have a, an idea and there's a, there's a framework and sort of a skeleton that you can work with whenever you're writing about um, an illness or condition, because there's the truth under the imagined circumstances, right? There is, this is what happens when someone has Alzheimer's or bipolar disorder. So there's, there's a framework that's very helpful in terms of what can happen. But within that, I get to play. I love it. Keep playing. We love it. Uh, we love being on the receiving end of all the playing. I think we should all play a little bit more with the things that we get to do. And thank you once again, Lisa, for being on the show with us today. Thank you, Gigi. Bye. Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode of Chats with Gigi, be sure to subscribe, leave us a review on iTunes and share it with a friend. If there's a guest or topic you'd like on the show, let me know. You can find me across all social media platforms as Gigi Diaz Live or head on over to my website, www.ggdiaz.com. Thanks again for listening and we'll be back next week. Until then, I'm sending lots of love and light your way.